0: Strap in because bank earnings season has begun. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. It is Tuesday. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This year is David Hansen. David, I'm reading that Kanye West attacked somebody who was uh, hurling racial slurs at Kim Kardashian. Would you, David, be concerned about being attacked by Kanye West? Would you be scared? By physical altercation with Kanye West.
1: Yes, absolutely. Really? Fetal position on the ground.
0: Really? Kanye?
1: He's a wild card. How,
0: how big is he? He's not a very big guy.
1: I don't know. In all aspects of life, wild card, career, everything. He's, you just wouldn't crazy. know what to expect. No, you can't, you can't handle crazy people like We're that. talking
0: like Mike Tyson, like biting your ear. Like exactly. an ear. Now that. that's
1: a fight I'd like to see. Mike Tyson and Kanye right, West? Yeah, yeah. Who's your money on? Tyson.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get to the headlines. First headline of the day, we're going to deal book. The headline is Wells Fargo's earnings rise 10%, slightly ahead of estimates. This morning, of course, bank earnings season kicked off. We got Wells Fargo. And we'll touch in a moment on JP Morgan. Of course, we don't want to cover the, the, the boring numbers here, but uh, W.T. Myers can go to the press releases if they, if they want that. The thing that I thought was interesting, that I think is interesting to visit here with Wells Fargo, is that the expectations are, are that this is a difficult environment for banks. It's going to be tough for them to grow, tough for them to produce higher earnings. And yet here we are looking at Wells Fargo's earnings, and we seem to be doing this every quarter, saying, well, didn't expect that they were going to keep growing earnings, and yet they did. Mm-hmm. So there were, there were a few things here. I'll, I'll start out with one, and then and I'll let you, you add in here. But provisions, uh, talk a lot about provisions. I'm, I'm not of the school where people say, oh, the provision for loan losses went down, so this is accounting magic. This is how banking works. This is, this is how this works. However, for 2013, uh, Wells Fargo set, set aside 0.28% of net loans as, as provision for loan losses. Right. That is way down from 0.92% in 2012. The I think sort of a, a more if, if we're looking forward to to when things are sorted out from the credit crisis because they still aren't. I, I think somewhere in the middle there we'll have a 0. 0.6 to 0.7% maybe type of range that Wells Fargo will be reporting. So right now, a little low. Previously a little high. However, given how much they set aside from the credit crisis, we still could see. Uh, provisions remain low for a while.
1: Right, and you talk about people are saying this is a difficult environment to grow earnings, and one of the things that comes up with Wells Fargo is mortgage. Man, they're going to get killed because refinancing is down. Oh, yeah. And that's true, volume down 60% year-over-year, year, so over, cut in half over there. But earnings continue to do well, and that's for a number of reasons. Provisions, setting aside less loans, so mortgage rates are higher, yes but the economy is also doing well. The housing market is up year over year. People are able to pay their mortgages, so they're able to put aside less money for loans there. So I think, again, shows with banks, you can't look at one thing that says, this goes down and it's bad. When one thing goes down... Another thing goes up a lot of the times, and that's what you're kind of seeing with the mortgage banking
0: here. Well, and here's another thing that's looking good is asset management and investment banking. You were just talking about you have these offsets when the economy is improving. Asset management and investment banking up $1.5 billion. Uh, in terms of the revenue produced year over year for Wells Fargo. A lot of that is on the asset management side, uh, both the gains from a strong market up 30% uh, for the S&P in, in 2013, but also new inflows. When, when the market's looking good, when the economy is looking good, people are contributing uh, to, to the funds that Wells Fargo manages. One other thing that I'll note, and this goes to the net interest margin Net interest margin dropped again, and this is that spread between what Wells Fargo pays for its funding, what it gets on its loans and other investments. That keeps falling because interest rates are so low, it's compressing. However, they're mitigating that to some extent by continuing to get better rates on long-term debt. Long-term debt went up year over year. However, the the rate that Wells Fargo is paying on it went from 2.3% in 2012 to 1.65% in in twenty thirteen. So not getting as much on loans and investments, but at least uh, trying to offset some of that on the
1: Which, cost which side. is fine too. I mean it's still it's dropping good. to the it's bottom smart. line. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's exactly maybe, what maybe this doing. maybe not as flashy as the top line, but still to the bottom line. It's money. Yes it is. All right. Second headline JP Morgan. JP Morgan profit drops seven point three percent after madoff legal settlements. What, what's your sound there? What's it your... <laughs>
0: For the made-off legal settlements. Over oh, for the legal yeah, legal settlements, legal of
1: course. Settlement. So net income, $5.3 billion. Not too bad, in my opinion. I mean, we knew the legal settlements were coming, but we look at all of 2013. Bad year in terms of headlines for J.P. Morgan. 20 Terrible. Bi- $20 billion in, in legal costs, roughly $20 billion. The bank still grew book value 5%. That's not great. I don't want 5%. Book value or tangible book value growth over the next five years. That's not what I'm hoping for. But in a year marked by 20 billion in legal expenses, and they still grew book value by five percent. What it's did they pay a uh, two, two
0: percent and change dividend? Right.
1: I think maybe more.
0: So if you're talking about the total value to shareholders, total mm-hmm. total return, kind of core return to shareholders, seven percent and change is pretty pretty good.
1: Right. Considering everything that happened, but but this quarter. A, a pretty standard quarter We saw some nice things from, from the card segment Card volume continues To go up there Investment banking Wasn't great But again A cyclical business there
0: But There's also a big hit to. There was a fair value Adjustment there of, Which is uh, yeah, b- 1.5 billion 1.5 1.5 Even more was I, Depending on where you see it They will account for it Slightly differently But mm-hmm. this was an OTC uh, Over-the-counter derivatives Valuation adjustment
1: That sounds 20. scary but it's really just an, an accounting adjustment when the fair value on the market changes or something they have to market on their books. That's not $1.5 billion coming or going from J.P. Morgan.
0: What was kind of interesting about the quarter is that the quarterly legal charges for, for the fourth quarter were actually lower than the quarterly legal charges for the fourth quarter of 2012. So actually looking better year over year from that perspective. Um, overall, it, it was an, outst- an outstanding um, quarter from J.P. Morgan. But I think if you look across the businesses uh, and you look at the stability in what is, I I think, unarguably not a conducive environment to J.P. Morgan or any banks, and you say, this is what they're doing in a not-so-great environment, what happens once they get to a a better environment? And I I don't think people are looking ahead to that, whether it's J.P. Morgan or it's Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo obviously getting a lot more credit than J.P. Morgan already, but for any of the banks, I I think there's, and, and this is not, this is typical, um, but there's very much a focus on what's going on now as opposed to uh, how the environment can
1: change. And I think I said a couple of shows ago that Wells Fargo had the lowest loan-to-deposit ratio amongst the big four. I was actually wrong. So I was wrong about that. I, I was kind of surprised.
0: You, you, were, I
1: was, I, I didn't you should have called me out. I should,
0: have, I should have called you out. So
1: J.P. Morgan's is in the high 50%. So yes, they have more of their, their capital tied mm-hmm. up in securities than a Wells Fargo, but that still shows you if loan demand comes back at good rates, J.P. Morgan's ready to make those But
0: loans. tied up in securities. I mean, those securities, right. a lot of them could be super, super short duration yep. that can easily be redeployed. Yes, sir. Third headline of the day. We're going to go to the Wall Street Journal. We got retail sales rise 0.2% in December. We can hit this pretty quickly. Uh, retail sales, very important. Consumer spending, big contributor to the U.S. economy. Auto sales down 1.8% uh, during, uh, during the month. Uh, Without that, retail sales were up 0.7% for the month. It's pretty good, Um, relatively positive. However, uh, look to 4.2% total retail sales growth for 2013. That's a slowing growth rate from both 2012 and 2011. So we're still growing at a, a decent rate for retail sales, but that rate is
1: slowing that's not ideal. Well, the, I guess the base of 2011, that 2011 was working off, was probably much, much lower. So, yes. not entirely surprising, but good news, I guess. All
0: right. Uh, let's do a, little, do a little schooling today. Let's go in, to school. In, in, the, in the focus, yeah, let's talk a little bit about tangible book value. We talk a lot about a tangible book value on this show. When we're talking valuations for the banks, pretty much any of the financial companies we talk about, we're talking about tangible book value. Mm-hmm. So what is tangible book value? So I, I, one way to describe it is it's a financing source. So the banks get financing through primarily through deposits, through debt and other borrowings, and then through equity. And the equity, um, we can think of it as money that shareholders have put in, but of course that money's been there a long time. It's a combination of, of money that's been put in by shareholders, whether by selling stock to mm-hmm. the public um, but then it's also the retained earnings over right. time, so it's a, it's a funding source, and it's the um, safest funding source because it's not going anywhere. Deposits people can pull out their deposits if they're scared about wh- what's going on at the bank. Uh, lending or, or loans, uh, debt, mm-hmm. depending on how long duration that is, that can go away as well. Uh, the lenders can decide not to refinance it. So tangible book value, um, that is a funding source that'll stay put. Right. Uh, Calculating it? How do you calculate tangible book value?
1: Good question. It is good. That's why I asked it. So, uh, so the high-level balance sheet: assets, liabilities, equity. uh, The equity there is to get the tangible book value. The tangible equity would just be that number minus any goodwill, intangibles, stuff that, if in theory the company was going through a liquidation process, you can't sell goodwill. Mm -hmm. There's not a, a true, true value on it. A lot of companies... There, there is value to goodwill for companies. You look at a company like Google. There's a lot of goodwill to that name right there. But in a liquidation process, you can't sell a name. So it's the equity left over minus out all these intangibles. Majority of it is usually goodwill.
0: Yep, goodwill and, and intangible assets. Sometimes there are assets that seem sort of intangible that may be included in tangible book value. I'm pretty sure the the deferred tax assets for Citigroup, Citigroup has a ton of deferred tax assets. Those get rolled over into tangible book, Mm -hmm. um, even though they may seem like an intangible asset. So I guess the next question would be, so we've got... Uh, book value and tangible book value is a funding source for banks. It's also what what shareholders would consider the, the capital that's attributable, attributable to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got the calculation for it. So why are we using it for financial companies? So the first reason I would say is that um, this it, it, it gives financial company investors an idea of the earning capacity of the company. Uh, because generally speaking, you can think about, well, how much to what extent can they put this capital to work? A- and that can mean directly putting the equity capital to work or levering up the e- equity capital through taking on deposits, through taking on debt. So they lever that up, and then they put all of that capital to work. They they, um, they make the returns on mm-hmm. everything that they've lent out or, or all the activities that they're doing, and then they're earning a return on the equity capital, the capital that's, again, attribut- attributable to the investors. So right. unlike unlike, like you said, a Google or an Amazon or something a company like that, where the shareholder equity doesn't really represent the business prospects. Uh, For a financial company, shareholder equity, the amount of capital there, really does in a large way um, or or in some way reflect the business prospects and, and what the company can do.
1: Right, and you say, why do we use that for financial companies? And then the next question, I think, would be, well, why do we kind of focus on tangible book value as opposed to just book value because um, there can be wild differences there and I, I guess tangible book value gives you a, a cleaner representation because when goodwill is carried on the books it's kind of up to management and the accountants over there to determine how much goodwill should we have on the books so if you make an acquisition and you, have, you bring on goodwill it's up to you on an ongoing basis to, to reassess that And say, does this premium still make sense or do we need to take a hit? And when they take an impairment to goodwill, that hurts earnings. So if if we look at a a table of kind of where the banks are now in terms of how much this can vary, Bank of America is a great example. You look at their book value and their tangible book value, it's a huge difference there. Very different. Because of all the acquisitions they made through LaSalle, countrywide well there i don't think there's very much countrywide goodwill on it anymore uh, but over time do feel any goodwill <laughs> over country. time a lot of acquisitions there so it's a cleaner representation of what's what are the true true assets at bank of america
0: and, and i think what may be important to address as well is that i just said that that the the amount of shareholder equity and, and maybe even more particularly the amount of tangible book value tangible shareholder equity um, suggests what a business can earn but it doesn't mean that that financial business is going to earn that. And right. that's where the valuation comes in, in, into effect. So if we look at Citigroup right now, which is still trading slightly below its tangible book value, uh, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Citigroup is le- earning very low returns on its tangible book. Mm-hmm. So I- investors are, are essentially looking at that and saying, we think Citigroup is going to continue to earn these low returns, so we're not going to value this equity any higher. So the, the valuation then comes into play because the, the tangible book, that, that funding source, gives you the opportunity to, to earn a certain amount of returns. And then the, company, the company's execution, how much it actually earns using right. that capital, that's then what investors are looking at and deciding at how they're going to value it. So a, as a, an opposing example, Wells Fargo is earning 14%. On its equity, and it's uh, it's trading at almost twice its tangible book value, um, and and just to round out from my perspective, in, in terms of uh, you know where to be careful here, uh, just like with any other type of valuation, this isn't the be all and end all. This is just a number. Uh, Investors really have to look at the full picture, the operations, the management, everything like that. A ta- the, the amount of tangible book value, certainly, and the tangible book value multiple, the valuation there, isn't
1: going to tell you the whole story. All right. I think we that covers it. Sure. If anything was unclear, let us know. Yeah,
0: we have an email address, WTMI at Fool.com. And speaking of, let's hit the mailbag. Again, email address, WTMI at Fool.com. We love getting questions. Go ahead and shoot us an email. Today we've got an email from Justin. And Justin writes, when you see a bank with a low loan-to-deposit ratio, do you see this as a positive or a negative? Do you look at it more as a company with a lot of potential growth or a company that is just not operating well enough to lend out cash? David, what's the deal? Low loan-to-deposit, you were just mentioning that with J.P. Morgan. Is that a lousy business or is that a business with a lot of opportunity that could go... sky high
1: I think it's the latter I think it they have opportunity it, I see it as that they're keeping more dry powder to when they see opportunity to go out and make loans he says are they not being able to lend out their cash you can lend your cash if you, you want fi- to. you can find you can too. find people that I mean you they could anybody can give a loan if you just say hey I'm going to charge you no interest all right I'll <laughs> take the money uh, so most of the time I don't see it as they they don't they can't find anyone to get a loan from them so it's usually that Management doesn't think it's a good time to be using all of their capital to go out and make loans, so they're keeping some on the sideline. So when rates are higher and when they have good opportunities, they can go out and make those loans.
0: I, I actually think I think you're primarily right. I think it could be a little bit of both too. Um, there there can be management teams that are just overly conservative, and a low loan to deposit ratio mm-hmm. uh, exists because they don't want to they don't want to push it out any further, and that's going to mean that. For, uh, until that management team changes its view or there's a new management team in there, that bank is likely to earn a low return on its uh, on its equity. That's a good point.
1: Uh, I didn't think of that.
0: It, it could go either way. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're probably thinking that because we think mostly about these, these big banks. And to the, for the greater part, I think they are in that waiting game of saying we want to be able to put this to work a
1: little bit better. Yeah, but I, that's a good point in terms of missing opportunities. And this isn't a... a Deploying deposits in the form of loans, but I think back to Wells Fargo jumping on the mortgage train when the refinance boom was happening, and you look at Citigroup and Bank of America, who basically weren't in a position to do that, and that really hurt their business in terms of revenue over the last or, or the last couple of years here. So. But a difference there. It is a
0: difference. Not to to keep dragging this out, but Citigroup and Bank of America, that difference is kind of interesting. And this digresses a little bit. But Bank of America should have been jumping on that because that is their core business. Citigroup's moving away from that. So that they didn't jump on that, I think that's understandable. And they didn't try to rush in afterwards. Mm -hmm. Bank of America did. They did. And they missed missed the party. They missed the boat. Good job, Bank of America. Wait, where's my... There we go. Very sad. <laughs> All right. Next, we've got the game for today. It's a little bit of would you rather. Classic would you rather uh, rules. Going to present a scenario. You've basically, i got two choices. You tell me what you'd rather do. We are running short on time, so let's just get right into it. David, would you rather buy Bank of Internet before or after its earnings release? Bofi I'm gonna, stock.
1: I think last time it had a big jump after earnings. I don't know. I can't remember. But I would rather I'd rather buy after. Uh, still a young company. I'd still like to see it. Continue to prove itself that it's being able to, to make smart decisions, make good loans. So I'd still like to see them grow in book value. I'm fine waiting a couple more quarters.
0: I put this I put this in there because somebody actually asked me this recently. Uh, my preference is no preference. I, I think trying to guess what's going to happen to the stock uh, on the earnings announcement is a sucker's game, and, and trying to guess whether it's going to go up or down. However, if you put a gun to my head and said you have to buy either before or after, I'm buying after. Primarily because there's really high expectations for this company Mm -hmm. and for this stock. So I think, if anything, it may be poised for disappointment. So I'd wait until after, maybe get a little bit of a a knockdown, a little bit of a better price after the result. But
1: again, I think it's kind of a coin flip. All right. Second scenario. Would you rather have Jamie Dimon or Elon Musk running JPMorgan Chase? What do you think?
0: It's an interesting question.
1: Quite interesting.
0: You, You know what? Just yesterday, we were talking about... Uh, management teams and how we evaluate management. One of the things that I said was that I prefer managers who are experienced in the industry and experienced with the company. I'm not going to veer from that today. Elon Musk does have some, maybe technically some, some uh, uh, financial services background with PayPal, but Jamie Dimon is a banker. So as exciting as it would be for Elon to see what Elon Musk would do with JP Morgan. I think that would be interesting. And as a shareholder, I bet the stock would get a nice big bump mm-hmm. when that was announced. I'm sticking with uh, Jamie Dimon.
1: I'm going with Dimon as well. It's very tempting. If it was any other business other than banking, I would probably lean towards Elon Musk. But again, I don't want my bank to change too much. They can still make good returns doing traditional banking. So any other industry, maybe Musk, but I got to stick with Dimon here.
0: Okay, let's finish off. This is kind of an interesting one that, that we're finishing off with here. Would you rather own Medallion Financial, ticker symbol Taxi, or Uber? If, they, if Uber was a public company and you could buy shares of Uber, which would you rather own?
1: I wasn't too familiar with Medallion. Uh, you mentioned to me before. So I guess they, they finance... The the purchase of taxi medallions in New York City. Basically, a
0: specialized lender.
1: Most yeah. of it, and most of their businesses in New York City. Most they have business it, yeah. in Boston, and some other big cities. Um, and, and the price of these medallions, I guess, has been going up a lot. So their business has been Nine booming. Million dollars. I guess you could. I guess you can kind of. That's a million dollars. Wow. Um, I guess you could kind of compare it to any any asset increasing in value. Um, so they've had a, a good run here, but. I picture a world where it's as easy to get around with an Uber, so I'm not going to bet on, on a scenario which Uber is kind of owning the transportation in the city, so I would not bet against Uber, so I've am got to go with them. You're going to go with Uber? i got to go with Uber. All right. Here, I'm going to give a little bit of
0: a pro and con approach here. For Medallion, 11.7% trailing 12-month ROE, return on equity, uh, and trading at 1.37 times tangible book value looks good so far. 6.6% dividend, that's attractive. The company is structured as a business development corporation. One mm-hmm. of the things that this means is that they have to pay out most of their income, so there's going to be a big dividend there uh, regardless. Over the last 10 years, clobbered the market, beat gold even, even as, as well as gold did over the uh, last 10 years. They, they touted that big time in their 2012 annual report, by the way. And they're diversifying their business outside of the medallion business. The medallion business is still far and away their biggest business, but they're getting outside of it. On the other hand, the the dynamics of the taxi market are changing. Uh, A lot of that having to do with Uber. Um, We'll see how how that plays out. I also don't like the fact that the company has been buying sports teams, including a professional lacrosse team. Don't know how I feel about that. And the fact that medallions in in New York um, are somewhere in the the million dollar range. And and right around that, you got to wonder, you got to figure that at some point, uh, there starts to be some pushback about how much you can actually earn mm-hmm. on that. Uh, on that. So, where do I come down? I'm, you know, I'm going to go with Medallion just to be different. I'm going to go with Medallion, and part of that is that I think if Uber were to come to market, it would be so crazy. Well, that wasn't right? part of the scenario. Well, you have to you have to think about that. Yeah. Um. And and, and with competitors out there for Uber like Lyft. Um, I don't, it's, it's questionable. Is Uber the winner? Right. Uh, in, in that sort of
1: private okay. car space. Okay. Well, you mentioned Medallions had a good run. They also didn't have to compete with Uber for a large part of that
0: That is there, true. So. That is true. I, I think this is a tough one. It could, could come down either way. Uh, depending on the price of Uber, if it wasn't really wildly overpriced, I could easily be tipped in favor of Uber.
1: Cool. I'm Let's a, put the question out to the listeners, too, and the, and the viewers. Email us, WTMI at fool.com. Tell us what you think. Yeah. Where are you absolutely. going? Absolutely. Uber or Taxi.
0: Cool. All right. Uh, finish off in the Twitter sphere. David, what is our first tweet?
1: First tweet is from Eddie Elfenbein, the sage Eddie Elfenbein. Uh, he says, reserves. Anyone who complains about these reserves, and the quote is, when people obsess about a bank's earnings being driven by the release of loan loss reserves, I don't think they get how a bank works. Do you get how a bank works? I don't. I don't. I have no idea.
0: <laughs> I, I, I don't understand that.
1: Essential. Okay, I knew it was coming. Uh, <laughs> it,
0: the, the buttons are so small.
1: This is, this is um, kind of how Wells Fargo puts it the cleanest explanation of uh, reserves. Reserve release represents the amount by which net charge offs exceed the provision for credit losses. So they basically just charged off more than they put away this quarter. That's all it means. I, we, we hear the word releasing the reserves, and it's like they're opening the floodgates and being like, letting all the money in, that's all the earnings we got. So that's not what it is. It's just a. Maybe they need to change the name. Maybe.
0: I think think a lot of people see it as accounting black magic. It's Mm -hmm. not accounting black magic. The the banks need to set aside money uh, against the expectations that they think they're going to lose money. And during bad times like the financial crisis, the the conditions are often going to look much worse than they actually are going to be down the road. So they set aside too much. Now you're seeing the reverse of that. And it's not
1: like they don't have anything left. Wells Fargo has enough reserves to cover four times the annualized what they charged off this quarter. So if you annualize that out, Four times they have that reserve. So it's not like they have nothing in there anymore. Stocked up. All right, second tweet. Second tweet, we've got Bespoke.
0: That's at Bespoke Invest. Note that the VIX is now down 14% so far in 2014. David, the market is crashing so far in 2014. (laughs) The VIX is down. Nobody's panicked. What is going on here? Are we just setting up for a disaster?
1: Well, we explained what the VIX was. uh, I think it was last month when Morgan was on. It's basically a measure of volatility in the market. At the the simplest, fear gauge. It's the fear fear gauge, gauge, David. It's at twelve. Fear gauge. It's at twelve right now. Since nineteen ninety, the since nineteen ninety, the the median has been eighteen. This is about thirty four percent below the median of the last twenty years. So, uh, uh, sorry to end on a bummer here, but. You could probably expect more volatility going forward. so Don't be surprised. You can
0: always expect more volatility to be. Oh, everyone's
1: there. like the stock market is very volatile. It, it, actually, historically, it's pretty non-volatile right now, if that's a word. So right now, right now. But historically, it is very
0: volatile. Historically. And was that was that the last tweet? That is last. Th- that's it's what we're story. ending on. I'm sorry, it's a downer. That was a downer. <laughs> don't you have a cute puppy picture or something like that for us Tomorrow, to put up? Tomorrow, I will. All right. So the our Twitter address is at TMF Financials. Our Facebook page is Motley Fool Financial Services. The question of the day, again, would you rather buy uh, shares of Uber if it were to come public or Medallion? uh, It was Medallion Financial, is Mm -hmm. that? Medallion Financial ticker symbol taxi. That's the question of the day. Cool. And that's our show for today. I'm Matt Copenheffer, David Hansen right here. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.